We all have life events that when we recall them in later years, acquire new meaning and importance. When I was in junior high, I was honored by the school administration being asked to be a member of the student hall patrol. In those days, we were assigned hall patrol. We were instructed to bring our lunch and eat it together in the school. It was always a special treat, and there was always a lot of competition to see whose mother had prepared the most desirable lunch. Often we traded lunch items among ourselves. One day when I was assigned to be on hall patrol, I forgot to tell mother that I needed a lunch until I was almost ready to leave for school. An expression of concern came over mother's face when I requested the lunch. She told me that she had just used up her last loaf of bread for breakfast and would not be baking until that afternoon. All she had in the house to make lunch was a large sweet roll left over from the previous night's supper. Mother made delicious sweet rolls. She always arranged them in a pan so that there was a large one across the top of the pan and then smaller ones running down the length of the pan. Only the large one remained. It was about the size of a loaf of bread in length, but of course not in thickness. I was embarrassed to take such a sweet roll for lunch when I imagined what the other patrol members would have. But I decided it was better to go with a sweet roll than go without lunch. When it came time to eat lunch, I went to a far-off corner so I wouldn't be noticed. When the trading of lunches started, my friends started to know what I had. I explained to them what had happened that morning, and to my dismay, everyone wanted to see the sweet roll. <laughs> but to my surprise, instead of making fun of me, they all wanted to have a piece. It turned out to be my best lunch trading day of the entire year. <laughs> the sweet roll that I thought would be an embarrassment to me turned out to be the hit of our lunch hour. As I've reflected on this experience that occurred to me uh, as part of this uh, experience that happened, I've sometimes we attach less value to familiar things simply because they are so common to us. One of those familiar things could be our membership in the restored Church. What the members of the Church possess is a pearl of great price, yet sometimes this priceless gem is so familiar to us that we do not appreciate its true value. While it is true that we should not cast our pearls before swine, this does not mean that we should not share them with people who will appreciate their value. One of the greatest side benefits of missionary work is watching the great value that others who have not previously heard about our beliefs attach to them. There is a great benefit in seeing one's treasures through someone else's eyes. My concern is that we often take for granted the unique and valuable blessings that we have of membership in the Lord's Church. And in such a state of underappreciation, we are likely to be complacent about our Church membership and our less valiant contributors to building a community of saints. We are blessed with a great noble heritage that offers a pathway 
to truth that veers dramatically away from the so-called ways of the world. We need to remind ourselves about the value of our heritage so that we do not underestimate its worth. I challenge the many saints who are hiding in the corners to stand tall and proclaim loudly the treasured teachings of our common heritage, not with a spirit of pride or boasting, but with a spirit of confidence and conviction. Something about which I am most proud is our, about our forefathers who had faith in God and their industry and perseverance turned what nobody else wanted in land into beautiful cities. When Joseph Smith was incarcerated in Liberty Jail, there was no prospect of his release. An extermination order had been issued against the Saints. It made it necessary for Brigham Young to organize the Saints to move them from Missouri. The migration from Missouri in February of 1839 caused many to complain that the Lord had forsaken His people. Some of His Church members questioned the wisdom of once again gathering the Saints together in one location. Crossing the Mississippi and pausing in some of the smaller communities along its banks proved to be a respite necessary for the membership to receive new direction from their leaders. The Prophet Joseph Smith wrote from Liberty Jail, encouraging the Saints not to scatter, but to gather together, then build from centers of strength. In April of that year, Joseph and Hiram and their fellow prisoners were allowed to escape from the jail in Missouri. They arrived in Quincy, Illinois, on the 22nd day of April of 1839. The Prophet immediately went to work to find a place to gather the Saints. He found a spot on the banks of the Mississippi River that looked like it had promise. He named the city Nauvoo, meaning beautiful. But at that time, it was anything but beautiful. It was a swampy peninsula that had not been drained. Out of the swamp-infested land rose a city that could truly be called beautiful. The first homes in Nauvoo were huts, tents, and a few abandoned buildings. Then the saints started to build log cabins. As time and capital would allow, frame buildings were erected, and still later, more substantial brick buildings were built. The prophet had a design to build a community of saints. He had three major objectives, first economic, second educational, and third spiritual. The prophet Joseph Smith's desire was that the saints should be economically self-sufficient. Our Father in Heaven has given all of His children everything they have—their talents, their abilities, their material goods and has made them stewards over these blessings. A treasured remnant of our heritage of economic self-sufficiency is the Church Welfare Services Program. It has two key ingredients. The first is the principle of love, and the second is that of work. The principle of love is the motivating power that moves us to give our time, our money, and services to this wonderful program. John the Beloved wrote, Let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and he knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. 
In this was manifest the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live to, through Him. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Then in 1 John, the third chapter, he wrote, But whosoever hath this world's goods, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? It is our understanding of the principle of love that encourages us to give generously to the fast offerings, a wonderful revealed system in which on the first Sunday of each month we voluntarily refrain from eating two meals, and the contribution of the cost of these meals we give to our bishop. Then he has the resources to help him help those in need. The system is mostly painless, and it raises our appreciation for those who are without and provides a means to satisfy their daily requirements. May the Lord continue to bless us with the desire to love one another and give generously based on the principle of the fast. The second basic principle is that of work. Work is just as important to the success of the Lord's economic plan as the command to love our neighbor. In the Doctrine and Covenants, we read, Now I, the Lord, am not well pleased with the inhabitants of Zion, for there are idlers among them, and their children are growing up in wickedness. They also seek not earnestly the riches of eternity, but their eyes are full of greediness. These things ought not to be and must be done away from among them. I have a special concern about the Lord's reference to our children. We see evidence that many parents who overindulge their children without adding sufficient training about the value of work. In any community of saints, we all work to serve each other in the best way we know how. Our work has a higher purpose because it is work to bless others and to build the kingdom of God. The second requirement in Joseph's community of saints was that of education. As early as 1840, when he applied for incorporation of Nauvoo, he also asked for authority to establish a university. From the Encyclopedia of Mormonism, we read, Educational ideas and practices of the Church grew directly out of certain revelations received by Joseph Smith that emphasized the eternal nature of knowledge and the vital role that learning plays in the spiritual, moral, and intellectual development of mankind. There are verses in our modern scripture that make special mention of the secular and spiritual learning. A few of these are, first, from the Book of Mormon, But to be learned is good if they hearken unto the counsel of God. Then from the Doctrine and Covenants, Whatever principle of intelligence we attain to in this life will rise with us in the resurrection. If a person gains more knowledge and intelligence in this life through his diligence and obedience than another, he will have so much the advantage in the world to come. From the Articles of Faith, if there is anything virtuous, lovely, or of good report, are praiseworthy, we seek after these things. The final desire of the Prophet Joseph Smith was to build a community of spiritual saints. This begins in the home. 
the most important instructions our children will ever receive will be that given to them in their own homes if parents diligently teach their children the way our Father in Heaven would like them to follow. One of the instructions our leaders have been given us is to hold regular family home evenings where we can meet together weekly, learn gospel principles, and build family unity. Here we can counsel together, read the scriptures, pray together, and play together. Our greatest goal is to become an eternal family. We build a community of saints, one family at a time. To enable the eternal family, a magnificent temple was constructed in Nauvoo. It stood as a beacon to remind all the people that the most important blessings in life are spiritual blessings. In the temple, sacred covenants are made, and the saving ordinances of the gospel are administered. Repeated visit to the temple give us an opportunity of reviewing these covenants performed in the ordinances vicariously for those who have died without these blessings. We now have temples scattered throughout the earth. We have a chance to receive the necessary ordinances to qualify for life eternal. Those who are worthy to enter the temple will receive great spiritual blessings if they continue to serve in faithfulness and keep their covenants. The Lord blesses His people when they keep their commandments and frequently visit His house. In God's eternal plan, our temples are gathering places for communities of saints working to build Zion. Our community of saints is not one of exclusion, but one of inclusion. Build upon a foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. It is open to all of us who love, appreciate, and have compassion for our Father in Heaven's children. A dual found formation of our economic welfare, our principles of charity and hard work. It is a progressive community which will educate our youth in courtesy, civility, and also in the deeper truths of the restored gospel. Our community has a spiritual center, allowing us to live with the companionship of the Holy Spirit that guides and directs our lives. May God grant unto us the desire to live closer to Him, so that we may enjoy the blessings of peace, harmony, security, and love for all mankind the hallmarks of a community that is one like Him. He is our God. We are His children. He is my witness to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. My beloved brethren, of this great worldwide brotherhood of the priesthood, I come to you humbly and prayerfully, speaking to you as a sacred and overwhelming responsibility. I desire to be understood. I hope that each of us can claim the promise of the Lord, them that honor me I will honor. I fully recognize all that has been accomplished by the Lord's servants in previous generations. But I believe you young men of the priesthood and young women of your age are in many ways the most promising generation in the history of the world. 
I come to this conclusion for several reasons. As Sister Faust and I read our grandchildren's patriarchal blessings, we find that almost without exception they are more promising than mine or hers. For you to achieve your potential, you will need to honor four sacred principles in your lives. These four are, first, reverence for deity, two, respecting and honoring family relationships, three, reverence and obedience to the ordinances and covenants of the holy priesthood, and four, respect for yourself as a son of God. I should like to speak about these four great principles tonight. The first is reverence for deity. I am grateful that the Lord has blessed us as a people with temporal blessings unequal in the history of the Church. These resources have been given us to do good and to permit our work on the earth to accelerate. But I fear that through prosperity many of us have been preoccupied with what Daniel called gods of silver and gold, of brass, iron, wood, and stone, which see not, nor hear, nor know. These, of course, are idols. In reverence for the sacred overarching and undergirding all else is a love and respect for deity. During most of the world's history, mankind has labored much in idolatry, either worshiping false gods or becoming preoccupied with acquiring the material opulence of this world. After the resurrection of the Savior, Peter and some of the disciples were at the Sea of Tiberias. Peter announced to them that he was going fishing. The disciples agreed to go with him. They seemed to have forgotten that they were called to be fishers of men. They fished through the night but caught nothing. In the morning, Jesus, standing on the shore, told them to cast their nets on the right side of the ship, and the nets were filled with fish. Jesus told them to bring in the fish they had caught. Peter and his associates landed 153. When they came ashore and they saw the fish being cooked on a fire of coals, and the Savior invited them to eat the fish and some bread. After they had eaten, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Lovest thou me more than these? Peter was an ardent fisherman. Catching fish was the livelihood from which the Savior had called him to become a fisher of men. The requirement that we should love the Lord above fish, bank accounts, automobiles, fine clothing, stocks, bonds, certificates of deposits, or any other possession is total. It is absolute. The first commandment given unto the ancient Israelites was, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. The Savior himself amplified this command. When he told the lawyer who asked him which was the greatest commandment, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. 
I am frequently offended by hearing people in public discourse and on television so casually violate the commandment, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. We are reminded in section 107 of the Doctrine and Covenants that in order to avoid the too frequent repetition of his holy name, the holy priesthood was named after the great high priest Melchizedek. Reverence and respect for sacred things all flow from the first commandment, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. We who have been commissioned with the priesthood authority to act in the name of the Savior need to respect God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost above all else. The second is to respect and honor family relationships. This should begin with reverence for mother's sacred love. All mothers go down into the valley of the shadow of death as they labor in birth to give us life. My mother has now been dead many years. I miss her sweet, loving influence in my life. I miss her general counsel and reproof, but mostly I miss her unconditional love. The yearning to be with her is at times almost overpowering. Most of us could say with Abraham Lincoln, all that I am or hope to be, I owe to my angel mother. My mother cooked, sewed, patched, remodeled clothes. She did so that the limited amount of money could stretch to give her sons more opportunities than she ever had. But more important was her unwavering faith that she desired to plant deep into our souls. Brethren, noble fatherhood gives us a glimpse of the divine attributes of our Father in heaven. A father should be many things. He should magnify his priesthood and be an example of righteousness. In companionship with his wife, he should be the source of stability and strength for the whole family. He should be the protector and the provider and the champion of the members of his family. Much of his love for his children should flow from his example of love, concern, and fidelity for their mother. By his uncompromising example, he should instill character into his children. When Elder Grand Richards left to attend college, his father, George F. Richards, said to him and his brother, George F. Jr., I would trust you two to go anywhere I would go myself. Their hearts swelled with love and pride in his words. Legrand later said, They put robs of steel in our spine, and we couldn't do anything that would disappoint them. A father should never consciously disappoint his wife or children. In 1989, there was a terrible earthquake in Armenia that killed over 300,000 people in four minutes. A distraught father went into frantic search for his son. He reached his son's school only to find that it had been reduced to a pile of rubble. But he was driven by his promise to his son 
No matter what, I will always be there for you. He visualized the corner where his son's classroom would be, rushed there, and started to dig through the debris brick by brick. Others came on the scene, the fire chief, then the police, warning him of fires and explosions and urging him to leave the search to emergency crews. But he tenaciously carried on digging. Night came and went, and then in the 38th hour of digging, he thought he heard his son's voice. Armand, he called out, and he heard, Dad, it's me, Dad. I told the other kids not to worry. I told him that if you were alive, you'd save me. And when you'd save me, they'd be saved. There are 14 of us left out of the 33. When the building collapsed, it made a wedge like a triangle, and it saved us. Come on out, boy. No, Dad. Let the other kids out first, because I know you'll get me no matter what. I know you'll be there for me. All family relationships should be honored, including those to our kindred dead. Love, service, and help should flow between brothers and sisters and the extended family. The third is respect for and obedience to the ordinances and covenants of the priesthood. Anciently, those who participated in priesthood ordinances wore priestly attire. Why we do not now wear priestly attire, we show respect by wearing appropriate clothing when administering and passing the sacrament and anointing the sick. I appreciated very much the remarks of Elder Groberg on this subject. Eli, the priest, was relieved of his calling when he was permitted when he permitted wickedness in the house of the Lord. The Lord said, For them that honor me, I will honor. The great priesthood power and authority with which we have been trusted must be exercised by those authorized to do so who have proven themselves worthy to do so. Only in this manner will our acts be sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise and thus be honored by the Lord. We honor the Lord by keeping our baptismal covenants, our sacrament covenants, our temple covenants, and by keeping the Sabbath day holy. The Lord has said, All among them who know their hearts are honest and are broken and their spirits contrite and are willing to observe their covenants by sacrifice, Yea, every sacrifice which I, the Lord, shall be command, they are accepted of me. The fourth is to respect yourself as a son of God. Those of us who have served missions have seen the miracle in the lives of some we have taught as they have come to realize that they are sons and daughters of God. Many years ago, an elder who served a mission in the British Isles said at the end of his labors, I think my mission was a failure. I have labored all my days as a missionary here, and I have baptized one dirty little Irish kid. 
That's all I baptized. Years later, after his return to his home in Montana, he had a visitor come to his home who asked, Are you the elder who served a mission in the British Isles in 1873? Yes. Then the man went on, And do you remember having said you thought your mission was a failure because you had baptized only one dirty little Irish kid? He said, Yes. The visitor put out his hand and said, I would like to shake hands with you. My name is Charles A. Callis of the Council of the Twelve Apostles of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I am that dirty little Irish kid that you baptized on your mission. That little Irish boy came to a knowledge of his potential as a son of God. Elder Callis left a lasting legacy for his large family. Serving as mission president for 25 years and in his apostolic ministry for 13 years, he blessed the lives of literally thousands. I feel privileged to have known this great apostle of the Lord when I was a young man. If we are constantly aware of the seeds of divinity in us, it will help us rise above earthly challenges and difficulties. Brigham Young said, When I look upon the faces of intelligent beings, I look upon the image of the God I serve. There are none but what have a portion of divinity within them. And though we are clothed with bodies which are in the image of our God, yet this mortality shrinks before the portion of divinity which we inherit from our Father." Being aware of our divine heritage will help men young and old grow and magnify the divinity which is within them and within all of us. All of us who wish to be honored by the Lord and receive His goodness, mercy, and eternal blessings must, I repeat, be obedient to these four great principles. Have a reverence for deity. Two, have respect and honor family relationships. Three, have a profound reverence for and obedience to the ordinances and covenants of the holy priesthood. Four, have respect for yourself as a son of God. Brethren, I pray that the Lord will bless each and every one of us in this grand army of righteous priesthood brethren. Individually, perhaps, our contribution may not seem great, but unitedly, I believe the priesthood power we collectively hold is the greatest force for good in the earth today. It is all exercised under the priesthood keys held by President Gordon B. Hinckley, who is the presiding high priest on the earth. I pray that we may be obedient to his inspired leadership and follow his example. May his remarkable ministry be extended for many years. 
Brethren, I have been privileged as boy and man to enjoy the warm, comforting spiritual mantle of the holy priesthood for 68 years. I cannot express in words what a great and marvelous sustaining influence this has been to me and my family. Many times I have been less than I should have been, but in my weak way I have wanted to be deserving of this supernal blessing. So long as there is breath in my life, I want to be found testifying of the wonder and glory of the restored gospel with its priesthood, keys, and authority. May we be worthy of the Lord's promise. Them that honor me, I will honor. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Fellow bearers of the priesthood everywhere, I hope we appreciate the priceless privilege of holding the priesthood of God. Its value is unfathomable. Through its power, worlds, even universes, have, are, and will be created or organized. Through its power, ordinances are performed which, when accompanied by righteousness, allow families to be together forever sins to be forgiven, the sick to be healed, the blind to see, and even life to be restored. God wants us, His sons, to hold His priesthood and learn to use it properly. He has explained that no power or influence can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood, only by persuasion, by long-suffering, by gentleness and meekness, by love unfeigned, by kindness and pure knowledge. For if we exercise control or dominion or compulsion upon the souls of the children of men, especially our wives and children, in any degree of unrighteousness, behold, the heavens withdraw themselves, the Spirit of the Lord is grieved, and when it is withdrawn, Amen to the priesthood or the authority of that man. Thus we see that while the power of the priesthood is unlimited, our individual power in the priesthood is limited by our degree of righteousness or purity. Just as clean wires properly connected are required to carry electrical power, so clean hands and pure hearts are required to carry priesthood power. Filth and grime slow or prevent the flow of electrical power. Unclean thoughts and actions interfere with individual priesthood power. When we are humble, clean, and pure of hand, heart, and mind, nothing righteous is impossible. An ancient Oriental saying declares, If a man lives a pure life, nothing can destroy him. In His love for us, God has decreed that any worthy man, regardless of wealth, education, color, cultural background, or language, may hold his priesthood. Thus, any properly ordained man who is clean in hand, heart, and mind can connect with the unlimited power of the priesthood. I learned this lesson well as a young missionary years ago in the South Pacific. 
My first assignment was to a small island hundreds of miles from headquarters where no one spoke English and I was the only white man. I was given a local companion named Fecky, who was then serving a building mission and was a priest in the Iranic priesthood. After eight seasick days and nights on a small, smelly boat, we arrived at Nyotoktapu. I struggled with the heat, the mosquitoes, the strange food, culture, and language, as well as homesickness. One afternoon we heard cries of anguish and saw a family bringing a limp, seemingly lifeless body of their eight-year-old son to us. They wailed out that he had fallen from a mango tree and would not respond to anything. The faithful father and mother put him in my arms and said, You have the Melchizedek priesthood. Bring him back to us whole and well. Though my knowledge of the language was still limited, I understood what they wanted, and I was scared. I wanted to run away. But the expressions of love and faith that shone from the eyes of the parents and brothers and sisters kept me glued to the spot. I looked expectantly at my companion. He shrugged and said, I don't have the proper authority. You and the branch president hold the Melchizedek priesthood. Grasping at that straw, I said, Well, then this is the duty of the branch president. No sooner had I said this than the branch president walked up. He had heard the commotion and returned from his garden. He was sweaty and covered with dirt and mud. I turned and explained what had happened and tried to give the young boy to him. He stepped back and said, I will go and wash and put on clean clothes. Then we will bless him and see what God has to say. In near panic, I cried, Can't you see he needs help now? He calmly replied, I know he needs a blessing. When I have washed myself and put on clean clothes, I will bring consecrated oil, and we will approach God and see what His will is. I cannot, I will not approach God with dirty hands and muddy clothes. He turned and left me holding the boy. I was speechless. Finally he returned, clean in body and dress, and I sensed in heart as well. Now, he said, I am clean, so we will approach the throne of God. That marvelous tongue and branch president, with clean hands and a pure heart, gave a beautiful and powerful priesthood blessing. I felt more like a witness than a participant. The words of the psalmist came to my mind, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. On that tiny island, a worthy priesthood holder ascended into the hill of the Lord, and the power of the priesthood came down from heaven and authorized a young boy's life to continue. With the fire of faith glowing from his eyes, the branch president told me what to do. Much additional faith and effort was required, but on the third day that little eight-year-old boy, full of life, was reunited with his family. I hope you understand and feel these truths. This was a tiny island in the midst of a huge ocean, with no electricity, no hospital, no doctors. But none of that mattered. 
For in addition to great love and faith, there was a branch president who held the Melchizedek priesthood, who understood the importance of cleanliness of hand and heart and its outward expression in cleanliness of body and dress, who exercised the priesthood in righteousness and purity according to the will of God. That day his individual power in the priesthood was sufficient to connect with the unlimited power of the priesthood over earthly life. When I look into the heavens at night and contemplate the endless galaxies therein, I am amazed at what a tiny dot our little earth is and how infinitesimally small I am. Yet I do not feel afraid, alone, insignificant, or distant from God, for I have witnessed His priesthood power connecting with clean hands and pure hearts on a tiny island in a vast ocean. Brethren, that connection is available to all of us, no matter where, when, or under what circumstances we live, so long as our hands, hearts, and minds are clean and pure. There is no individual power in the priesthood outside of individual purity. We simply must work harder at purifying our lives by serving others in more Christlike ways. There are always opportunities to serve in our families, in the Church, on missions, in temples, and among our fellow men. Noble service requires hard work, deep sacrifice, and complete unselfishness. The more the sacrifice, the greater the resultant purity. God, who is full of light, life, and love, wants us to hold and properly use His priesthood so we can transmit that light, life, and love to all about us. On the other hand, Satan, the prince of darkness, wants to hold back light, life, and love as much as he can. Since there is nothing Satan can do about the power of the priesthood, he concentrates his energy on trying to limit our individual power in the priesthood by attempting to dirty our hands, hearts, and minds through abuse, anger, neglect, pornography, selfishness, or any other evil he can entice us to think or do. He knows if he can sufficiently soil us individually, he can, to that degree, keep us from the purity needed to exercise the priesthood to bring more life, light, and love to this earth and all the inhabitants thereof, past, present, and future. O oh, brethren, please don't sell your precious priesthood birthright for a mess of X or R-rated pottage. Remember the sand castles we build on the beaches of mortality, no matter how elaborate, will eventually be washed away by the tide. Only purity of hand, heart, and mind will allow us to tap into the ultimate power of the priesthood to truly bless and eventually be able to build eternal mansions more beautiful and lasting than we can presently imagine. I have learned for myself that God lives, that Jesus is the Christ, that He is my friend and your friend. I know that Jesus is the perfect personification of pure priesthood power. Follow Him. I pray that we may all serve with more purity of heart, that our individual power in the priesthood may eventually be full through the perfect love of Him whose priesthood we bear. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Some years ago, Sister Sorensen and I had the privilege of visiting India. 
At one airport, I remember walking across the landing strip and seeing some men sitting in front of wicker baskets playing flutes. As they started to play the music, they would take the top off the basket and a cobra would appear. As the music continued, the snake would rise higher and higher, nearly reaching its full length until the cobra would collapse back into the basket. Once I noticed the cobra fall outside the basket. The men playing the flute reached over, petted the cobra, and carefully put it back into the basket. I was amazed that the man could handle such a dangerous creature apparently without being harmed. But our guide quickly told me that this was very risky and told us that the major cause of death in this province was indeed poisonous snake bite. My mind raced back to the days of my youth on the farm. In the summertime, one of our responsibilities was to haul hay from the fields into the barn for the winter for storage. My dad would pitch the hay onto a flatbed wagon. I would then tromp down the hay to get as much as possible on the wagon. One day, in one of the loose bundles pitched onto the wagon was a rattlesnake. When I looked at it, I was concerned, excited, and afraid. The snake was lying in the nice, cool hay. The sun was glistening on its diamond back. After a few moments, the snake stopped rattling, became still, and I became very curious. I started to get closer and leaned over for a better look when suddenly I heard a call from my father. David, my boy, you can't pet a rattlesnake. Tonight I would like to talk to you about the dangers of petting poisonous snakes. The ones I refer to do not have long, slithering bodies but come in many other forms. Often the world makes these dangers look harmless, even exciting and interesting. But petting such snakes fills the mind with poison, poison that drives away the Holy Spirit. Brethren, today's popular entertainment often makes what is evil and wrong look enjoyable and right. Let us remember the Lord's counsel. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. Pornography, though built by Satan as entertainment, is a deeply poisonous, deceptive snake that lies up lies coiled up in magazines, the Internet, and the television. Pornography destroys self-esteem and weakens self-discipline. It is far more deadly to the spirit than the rattlesnake my father warned me not to pet. The Bible records that King David was, a, was gifted spiritually, but he stood where he should not have stood. He watched what he should not have watched. Those obsessions became his downfall. Resisting the temptations of today's electronic media is not easy. It takes focused courage and effort. In the small town where I grew up, one had to drive at least an hour to find trouble. But today, on the Internet, trouble is just a few mouse clicks away. To avoid such temptations, be like Captain Moroni of old. Set up fortifications to strengthen your places of weakness. Instead of building walls of timber and dirt to protect a vulnerable city, build fortifications in the form of personal ground rules to protect your priceless virtue. When you are on a date, plan to be in groups and avoid being alone. I know men, young and old, who have simply determined not to turn on the TV or surf the Internet any time when they are alone. Fathers, it is wise to keep computers and televisions in the family room or other high-traffic areas in your home, not in children's bedrooms. 
I also know fathers who, while on business trips, wisely choose not to turn on the hotel television. Remember, such fortifications are not a sign of weakness. On the contrary, they show strength. The scriptures tell us Captain Moroni was so strong that if all men would, like him, would be like him, the very powers of hell would be shaken forever. Remember, Moroni's strongholds were the key to his success. Creating your own strongholds will be the key to yours. One key fortification you can build is to decide now, before you face a challenge, where to draw the line. Our prophet teaches that if we decide now not to watch inappropriate media, but instead to walk away, the challenge is behind us. Recently, my granddaughter Jennifer was invited to go with several of her school friends to a dinner and a movie. The girls all agreed on the movie they were going to see, and Jennifer was comfortable attending. However, the girl who left dinner to buy the movie tickets for the group returned with tickets to a different movie than was planned. She said, It's a great show, and it's R-rated. Jennifer, caught by surprise, couldn't believe the situation had changed so quickly. But fortunately, she had made up her mind before she found herself in this position that she would not watch R-rated movies. She was able to stand firm and say to her friends, I can't go see an R-rated movie. My parents would not approve. To which the girls replied, Oh, come on, your parents will never know. Confronted with this, Jennifer went on to say, Well, actually, it doesn't matter whether my parents will know. I just don't go to R-rated movies. Her friends were upset and tried to get her to relent. They told her she was ruining everything. When she would not give in, they threw the ticket and the change in her face and deserted her for the R-rated movie. It wound up being a lonely night full of rejection from her friends. But it was a great moment for Jennifer and our family. She gained confidence, self-worth, and spiritual power. Knowingly petting a poisonous spiritual snake is doubly dangerous. Those who do remind me of the little boy who was overheard praying, Heavenly Father, if you can't make me a better boy, don't worry about it. I'm having a real good time like I am. Don't be like that short-sighted boy. Those who plan to sin thinking they can repent before they receive the sacred covenants and ordinances of the temple risk losing their spiritual health. They find it is a painful process to come back to the right path. For those who suffer from poisons, there, are, there is a painful cleansing process. Where the bite was inflicted, a cut with a sharp knife is required. Then someone must cleanse the infected blood from the wound. Often a stay in the hospital is required. My plea to you tonight, brethren, is to avoid petting that rattlesnake. It's much better not to commit the sin. Some young men, as they advance in the priesthood, plan for a mission, or prepare to go to the temple, realize they suffer from snake bite that has spiritually poisoned them. The sexual sins are among the most poisonous. If, some, if you or someone you know has been poisoned spiritually, there is a spiritual snake bite kit. It's called repentance. And like the remedy for temporal snake bite, it is most effective if applied quickly and early. It can combat even the most venomous spiritual poisons. For behold, the Lord your Redeemer suffered death in the flesh, wherefore he suffered the pain of all men, that all men might repent and come unto him. 
The miracle of forgiveness is real. Your repentance is honored to the Lord. An important step in obtaining the cure for spiritual poison is to get on one's knees and ask Heavenly Father to forgive him. Pray for the desire to do what is right. Pray for the courage to talk to your parents and the bishop if necessary. Regardless of your fears, they will continue to love you. You don't have to do this alone. The path of repentance, though difficult, need not be traveled alone. Parents and leaders can provide valuable encouragement and support. The power of freedom of forgiveness is real. The Savior taught the truth shall make you free. Joy comes from living the way the Savior lived. He has asked us to keep our thoughts pure. He has asked us to maintain our self-respect. He has asked us to become a good influence on our family and our friends. We are to love them and to lift them toward the light. He said, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if you have love one to another. He has promised he will help us live his standards. He has said, Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Brethren of the priesthood, can you join me right here, right now, once again to commit and to take upon you the name of Christ? With this priesthood which you hold, can you rise up and wield the power of God to defend righteousness? Can you stand in holy places? We have all accepted the responsibility to pastor in our life after the Master. He has committed the keys of the priesthood and of divine revelation to our living prophet, Gordon B. Hinckley. He counsels, Stay away from pornography. I plead with you to get it out of your life, he said. Don't allow the poison to touch your souls, brethren. Remember, he that is righteous is favored of God. I testify of this in the name of our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. Amen. I am grateful for the honor of speaking in the name of the Lord to the shepherds of Israel. That is who we are. When we accepted the priesthood, we took upon us the responsibility to do our part in watching over the Church. None of us can escape accountability. The President of the priesthood and all the earth bears the total responsibility. Through the keys of the priesthood, each quorum bears its part. Even the newest deacon in the most distant place on earth has a part in the great responsibility to watch over the Church. Listen to these words from the Doctrine and Covenants. Therefore, let every man stand in his own office and labor in his own calling, and let not the head say unto the feet, It hath no need of the feet, for without the feet how shall the body be able to stand? And then the Savior includes even the deacons in his listening of assignments. The deacons and teachers should be appointed to watch over the Church, to be standing ministers unto the Church. I pray that I might explain our sacred trust so that even the newest deacon and the convert most recently ordained will see his opportunity. In many places in the scriptures, the Lord has described Himself and those He calls to the priesthood as shepherds. A shepherd watches over sheep. In the scriptural stories, the sheep are in danger. They need protection and nourishment. The Savior warns us that we must watch the sheep as He does. He gave His life for them. They are His. 
We cannot approach His standard if, like a hired servant, we watch only when it is convenient and only for a reward. Here is His standard. I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd giveth His life for the sheep. But he that is an hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming, and leaveth the sheep, and fleeth, and the wolf catcheth them, and scattereth the sheep. The members of the Church are the sheep. They are His, and we are called by Him to watch over them. We are to do more than warn them against danger. We are to feed them. Once long ago, the Lord commanded His prophet to rebuke the shepherds of Israel. Here is the warning, which is still in force, in the words of the prophet Ezekiel. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God unto the shepherds, Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves, should not the shepherds feed the flocks. The food those shepherds took for themselves, letting the sheep starve, could lead to salvation for the sheep. One of the great shepherds in the Book of Mormon described both what that food is and how it can be provided. And after they had been received unto baptism and were wrought upon and cleansed by the power of the Holy Ghost, they were numbered among the people of the Church of Christ, and their names were taken that they might be remembered and nourished by the good word of God to keep them in the right way, to keep them continually watchful unto prayer, relying alone upon the merits of Christ, who was the author and finisher of their faith. It is painful to imagine a shepherd feeding himself and letting the sheep go hungry. Yet I have seen many shepherds who feed their flocks. One was the president of a deacon's quorum. One of his quorum members lived near my home. That neighbor boy had never attended a quorum meeting nor done anything with the members of his quorum. His stepfather was not a member, and his mother did not attend church. The presidency of his deacon's quorum met in council one Sunday morning. Each week they were fed the good word of God by the fine advisor and the teacher. In their presidency meeting, those 13-year-old shepherds remembered the boy who never came. They talked about how much he needed what they received. The President assigned his counselor to go after that wandering sheep. I knew the counselor, and I knew he was shy, and I knew the difficulty of the assignment, so I watched with wonder through my front window as the counselor trudged by my house going up the road to the home of the boy who never came to church. The shepherd had his hands in his pockets. His eyes were on the ground. He walked slowly, the way you would if you weren't sure you wanted to get where you were headed. In twenty minutes or so, he came back down the road with the lost deacon, walking by his side. That scene was repeated for a few more Sundays. Then the boy, who had been lost and was found, moved away. Now, that story seems unremarkable. It was just three boys sitting in a room around a small table. Then it was a boy walking up a road and coming back with another boy. But years later, I was in a state conference a continent away from the room in which that presidency had met in council.
A gray-haired man came up to me and said quietly, My grandson lived in your ward years ago. With tenderness, he told me of that boy's life, and then he asked if I could find that deacon who walked slowly up that road. And he wondered if I could thank him and tell him that his grandson, now grown to be a man, still remembered. He remembered because in those few weeks he had been, for the first time in his life that he recognized, watched over by the shepherds of Israel. He had been warned by hearing eternal truth from people who cared about him. He had been offered the bread of life, and young shepherds had been true to their trust from the Lord. It is not easy to learn to do that well and do it consistently. The Savior showed us how and how to train others to do it. He established His Church. He had to leave His Church in the hands of inexperienced servants, just as many of us are. He knew they would face difficulties beyond their human powers to resolve. What He did for them can be a guide for us. When the Savior went to the Garden of Gethsemane to suffer bitter agonies before His betrayal and sufferings on the cross, He could have gone alone. But he took his priesthood servants with him. Here is the account from Matthew. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tear ye here and watch with me. The Savior prayed to his Father for strength. In the midst of his agony, he returned to Peter to teach him what it requires for all who would watch with him. And he cometh unto the disciples and findeth them asleep and saith unto Peter, What? Could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. There is a reassurance and a warning in that simple exchange of the Master with his shepherds. He watches with us. He who sees all things, whose love is endless, and who never sleeps, he watches with us. He knows what the sheep need at every moment. By the power of the Holy Ghost, He can tell us and send us to them, and we can, by the priesthood, invite His power to bless them. But His warning to Peter is to us as well. The wolf who would kill the sheep will surely tear at the shepherd. So we must watch over ourselves as well as others. As a shepherd, we will be tempted to go near the edges of sin, but sin in any form offends the Holy Ghost. You must not do anything or go anywhere that offends the Spirit. You cannot afford that risk. Should sin cause you to fail, you would not only be responsible for your own sins, but the sorrow you might have prevented in the lives of others had you been worthy to hear and obey the whisperings of the Spirit. The shepherd must be able to hear the voice of the Spirit and bring down the powers of heaven, or he will fail. The warning given to an ancient prophet is a warning to us as well. So thou, O son of man, I have set thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore thou shalt hear the word at my mouth and warn them from me. When I say unto the wicked, O wicked man, thou shalt surely die, if thou dost not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood 
will I require at thine hand. The penalty for failure is great, but the Lord taught Peter how to build the foundation for success. He repeated a simple message three times. It was that love for the Lord would be in the heart of a true shepherd. Here is the end of the account. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. It is love that most must motivate the shepherds of Israel. That may seem difficult at the start because we may not even know the Lord well. But if we begin with even a little grain of faith in Him, our service to the sheep will increase our love for Him and for them. It comes from simple things that every shepherd must do. We pray for the sheep, every one for whom we are responsible. When we ask, please tell me who needs me, answers will come. A face or a name will come into our minds. Or we may have a chance meeting that we feel isn't chance. In those moments, we will feel the love of the Savior for them and for us. As you watch over His sheep, your love for Him will grow, and that will increase your confidence and your courage. Now, you may be thinking, it's not that easy for me. I have so many people to watch over, and I have so little time. But where the Lord calls, He prepares a way, His way. There are shepherds who believe that. I'll tell you about one. Two years ago, a man was called as the president of his elders' quorum. He had been a member of the Church for less than ten years. He had just become worthy to be sealed to his wife and family in the temple. His wife was an invalid. He had three daughters. The oldest was 13, and she cooked the meals and, with the others, cared for the house. His scant earnings from manual labor supported not only those five people but a grandfather who lived with them in their small house. When he was called to be president of his elders' quorum, it had 13 members. That tiny quorum was responsible for another 101 men who either had no priesthood at all or who were deacons, teachers, or priests. He was responsible to watch over the souls of 114 families with little hope that he could devote more than his Sundays and perhaps one night a week to his service with all he did to serve his own family. The difficulty of what he faced drove him to his knees in prayer. Then he stood up and went to work. In his efforts to meet and know his sheep, his prayers were answered in a way he had not expected. He came to see beyond individuals. He came to know that the Lord's purpose was for him to build families. And even with his limited experience, he knew that the way to build families would be to help them qualify to make and keep temple covenants. He began to do what a good shepherd always does, but he did it differently when he saw the temple as their destination. First he prayed to know who were to be his counselors to go with him, and then he prayed to know which families needed him and had been prepared. He called in as many as he could. Some were cold and did not accept his friendship. But with those who did, he followed a pattern. As soon as he saw interest and trust, he invited them to meet the bishop. He had asked the bishop beforehand, Please tell them what it takes to be worthy to go to the temple to claim its blessings for them and their families. And then, please, 
testify to them as I have that it will be worth it. A few then accepted the Quorum President's invitation to a temple preparation class taught by stake leaders. Not all completed the course and not all qualified for the temple, but each family and each father was prayed for. Most were invited at least once to a feast of the good word of God. With every invitation came the President's testimony of the blessings of being a family sealed forever and the sadness of being separated. Every invitation was issued with the love of the Savior. During the President's service, he has seen 12 of the men he taught ordained elders. He has seen four of his elders ordained high priests. Those numbers don't come close to measuring the miracle. The families of those men will be blessed over generations. Fathers and mothers are now sealed to each other and to their children. They are praying over their children, receiving the help of heaven and teaching the gospel with the love and inspiration the Lord gives to faithful parents. That president and his counselors have become true shepherds. They have watched over the flock with the Master and have come to love Him. They are eyewitnesses to the truth of what the Savior taught an apostle, Thomas B. Marsh. It is true for all who watch with the Lord over His sheep. Go your way whithersoever I will, and it shall be given you by the Comforter what you shall do and whither you shall go. Pray always lest you enter into temptation and lose your reward. Be faithful unto the end, and, lo, I am with you. These words are not of man nor of men, but of me, even Jesus Christ, your Redeemer, by the will of the Father. Amen. I testify that God the Father lives and answers our prayers. I am a witness that the loving Savior watches over His sheep with his faithful shepherds. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.